0: Hello, people. Uh, just before we come to that word, can I ask you to um, continue to be in prayer for Hamish and Steph Toos? Uh, we brought you that very sad news last week of the death of their 18 day old son, Banjo. And uh, so please continue to be in prayer for them. And can I also invite you to Banjo's memorial service tomorrow, two o'clock. Here at EV will be a service for their whole church family. Uh, You are invited, no matter your relationship to them, if you are family with them, come and support, grieve and rejoice in the hope that we have in the gospel, uh, the hope that we have for Banjo and ourselves as we trust in Jesus. So two o'clock tomorrow, and there will be a crash if that means that you'll be able to get along. So two o'clock tomorrow, uh, be in prayer for them. Let's pray now. Our Father, we we can't escape that this world is broken. We have moments here and there and we might try really hard, but uh, we are so aware, particularly right now, along with Hamish and Steph, just how messed up our world is. Uh, The horror of death. Uh, We pray, please, for them. We pray for your comfort the kind of comfort that only you, almighty God, can bring. We ask that you might bring that by your spirit, through your word, among your people. We thank you for the gift of family, of who we are in Christ. Pray please that now, as we come to your word, we might just see either for the first time or afresh how precious it is to be joined to you and each other and that you might cause our love to abound more and more in knowledge. Please, Lord, show us how you would have us live in response to all you've done for us in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let me start with a couple of proverbs, which, gee, they can paint such great pictures for us. Have a look at these two proverbs. What do they have in common? Better to live on a corner of the roof... Than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Oh, amen. Oh, has oh, your marriage <laughs> better a small serving of veggies we love than a fattened calf with hatred? What do they have in common? Uh, well, I guess they're both offensive. If you're a feminist, or if you're a vegetarian, you kind of, what's going on there? Now, just with the first one, it is put negatively, the Bible would quite happily substitute husband as well. The Bible actually spends more time talking about what kind of idiot a husband can be than it does quarrelsome wives. But but the second point, I'm sorry, vegetarians, the Bible does hold meat up as the ideal. Um, There's no getting around that one. What do they got in common? Well, they, they, they resonate with our deep longings for unity and peace. Unity and peace. You know, we, we long for that more than 14-hour slow-cooked meat. We long to enjoy relationships where I'm accepted, respected, considered. Where love and service are demonstrated, protection and tolerance are highly valued. Here's the thing, Christianity offers this. Those words, those ideas I've just lifted from this passage that we've come to this morning. Oh, to belong to a community like that. But, like all things precious in our broken world, our unity that we enjoy is constantly under threat. It's under threat among us here at EV, as it was among the earliest Christians in Rome to whom Paul is writing this letter. So, my plan this morning in chapters 14 and first half of 15 is to move through it in three steps, three movements, by looking at what the issue is, the instruction that Paul gives, and the engine. So what was going on that led Paul to writing, write chapter 14 and 15? How does he instruct his readers to respond? And what's the engine that powers his instruction? And it's my prayer that as we do that, the unity that we do enjoy here might be maintained. That it might be maintained to the glory of God. Okay, so step one, the issue. What was going on here? Well, there are two groups of people that have been united by the gospel in Rome, but were in danger of splintering unnecessarily. Paul describes them as those who are weak in faith, chapter 14, verse 1, and those, chapter 15, verse 1, who are strong in faith. So you've got the weak in the faith and you've got the strong in the faith And I've got a chart up here that will take us through what we learn about the weak and the strong through this passage. So the weak, they only eat vegetables as opposed to the carnivores of the strong who eat meat. And they're strong, of course, because they do eat meat, more protein. (laughs) Sorry, veggies. We'll come to what this is all about. Uh, The weak, they don't drink alcohol, whereas the strong do. There's no, there's no suggestion of alcoholism or drunkenness, but they engage with alcohol. The weak observe certain days as sacred, more holy, more special than other days, whereas the strong, they're all the same. The weak, in terms of their attitude, are judging what they consider to be the loose Christians. And the loose Christians, which are described as the strong, are looking down on these overly strict Christians. you got a sense of what's going on here between the weak and the strong. Now, who are they in Rome? Well, we can't be exactly sure because Paul doesn't name it. But it seems likely that the weak in faith are largely Jews who are struggling to adjust their culture and customs of centuries now that Jesus has brought a new way of relating to God. It seems like the weaker in the minority compared to the strong, the majority. What we can be sure on is that both weak and strong are Christians. For whom Christ died, verse 15. To whom they belong, verse 8. These are believers. There are other similar issues in the New Testament which would put one camp outside of the fellowship of Christ. Not here. These are all believers. And notice that they're described as being those of weak in faith, strong in faith. What's that about? Well, when you've understood Romans and the gospel, you understand that the only way to God is by faith, nothing that I do, looking away from myself to a saviour. This doesn't mean that the weak here just have a little bit of saving faith, as opposed to the strong who have a lot of saving faith. That's not how he's using faith in this context. Rather, he's getting at the conscience of the person who has faith. And the weak conscience limits their behaviours more than necessary. And if they matured in working out their faith in Jesus, their conscience would still be sensitive, but it would just—it have boundary lines in different places. Now... One note about the posture of these people, those who are weak in faith, they're not necessarily the softly spoken, shy type, you know, the weak type. But actually, they're probably very strong in voicing their convictions and objections to the loose Christians. So don't just think kind of gentle, meek, shy, we've got to be... No, no. Be, be careful not to assume that because you are bold in defending your convictions, that that necessarily puts you in the strong camp. Okay? This, this isn't talking about posture, they're clearly very strong on what they believe, but Paul says the boundaries aren't where they need to be. So there's a summary of the issue. The unity and peace among the early Christians in Rome was threatened by differing convictions and preferences. Get this, something that pretty much every New Testament letter has to deal with, which tells you a couple of things about Christian community. Number one, the expectation is that we get close enough for our lives to be messy we get close enough that life is messy. Yesterday, I did what I do most. Saturday mornings, I stood on the sideline of a soccer field for about an hour. And if you've had that experience of sporting, I stood next to some other soccer parents for an hour and we had a chat. We got on just fine. Do you know why? Because it was just one hour. <laughs> And I won't think about them for the rest of the week. I won't have anything to do with them for the rest of the week. save for them. In fact, the people I was talking to yesterday, I suspect we probably wouldn't get on very well if we had more than an hour. But Christianity, church, is not like a soccer club. If I just stand kind of on the sideline alongside a few Christians for an hour a week and then have nothing more to do with them, so that our lives can even be messy, man, you're missing something huge that God has for you in Jesus. The New Testament deals with the issue of disagreement and disunity because it expects our lives to be close, therefore to be messy. Here's the second thing it tells you that the New Testament often deals with this, is that our differences won't disappear. This is important. See, Paul addresses the issue, but not with some kind of naive optimism that will all come to exactly one mind on every single issue and will just be this kind of homogenous group that beautifully gets on with every issue. No, no, no. The New Testament keeps speaking to this issue so that we can cope with each other, so that we can bear up with each other so that we can limp alongside each other to heaven. This is about getting us to heaven where all of our angst, all of our disunity will disappear. But though that may not sound very exciting or very beautiful, limping along, coping with each other, the text says we do it to the praise of God. It tells you something about Christian community the expectation that we are in each other's lives, that there will be differences and disagreements. So what do we do with them? This brings us to the second movement, the instruction. The instruction is actually quite simple to understand at one level. Uh, he's, Paul's going to finish this section, chapter 15, verse 7, by saying, accept one another. Accept one another. And he begins the section, chapter 14, verse 1, by speaking to the strong who are to accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Very simple on one hand, and this is where it now starts to get trickier to understand. See, if there are disputable matters, then the implication is there are indisputable matters. And the strong are to accept the weak over disputable matters. But how do you work out what's an indisputable matter and what's a disputable one? Or is Paul actually teaching, you know, Christian acceptance has no boundaries. So do not judge on anything. Welcome anyone, everyone, no matter what they think, what they do, just accept. No, he can't mean that. There are matters that are indisputable ones and it means that the faithful follower of Jesus will reject what is at odds with indisputable truths of Scripture and reject those out of fellowship who insist on them. For example, turn over to chapter 16, just flick over a page or two. We'll come to this in a couple of weeks' time. But he wraps up the letter and you just skim down the page there and you see him go, greet, 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 say hi, say hi, say hi to a whole bunch of people. But then you get to verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. There's an example where Paul is very clear that Christian acceptance doesn't have limitless boundaries. There are indisputable matters. What Paul points out as an indisputable matter here is false teaching and false teachers. Keep away from them. So, a couple of examples Is Jesus fully God and fully man? Or is he a divine-like man? We're not having that debate among fellowship. That one was nutted out back in the 4th century, called the Arian debate. Jehovah's Witnesses, who hold to Jesus being a divine-like man, are outside the Christian faith. It's an indisputable matter. We're not debating that, at least not as brothers and sisters, not within fellowship. What about justification by faith, our confidence before God? Is it by faith alone, in Christ alone, and not dependent on my works? Yes. And there is an irreconcilable chasm between the position of... the the official position of the Roman Catholic Church and any others who would attribute our works as a basis for our justification, and the biblical position that was clarified, that was reclaimed in the 15th, 16th century, the Reformation. We're not having that debate as brothers and sisters in fellowship. Now, hang on, you might say, I thought this was a sermon about unity, about peace. This doesn't sound like it's going to lead to that. Well, that's right. What Paul is offering here isn't an open-ended No boundaries acceptance, that will kill us because the gospel is at stake. First order gospel issues are ones to divide over because heaven and hell are at stake. So how do you work out what those first order indisputable matters are? How do you work out what a disputable matter is? Well, a first-order, indisputable issue is one that the Bible frequently and clearly teaches on and ties to other gospel matters. An issue that the Bible frequently and clearly teaches on and ties to other gospel matters. For example, homosexuality. Now, I'm not talking about same-sex attraction. I'm talking about sex outside of biblical marriage between the members of the same sex. There are plenty of people, pastors, even denominations that consider this a disputable matter, not an indisputable one. I'm sure you're aware of that. I'm sure you have friends like that. Okay, we might kind of differ over them, but doesn't Paul say, accept one another? This, though, when you run it through that test of the Bible teaching frequently and clearly. You just cannot, with careful study of the Bible, come up with a conclusion other than the Bible prohibits homosexuality. And when you look at the other gospel issues that it ties it to, it ties it to heaven and hell. 1 Corinthians 6, no one will enter the kingdom who is a homosexual who is a practising homosexual. There are first order issues where the Bible will say, indisputable. What about another issue? Baptism. This is an issue that is frequently taught about in the Bible, or at least spoken about. What isn't clear, though, is at what age we are to baptise someone. It is clear that the Bible expects all Christians to be baptised. That's straightforward. But is it when they're an infant, if they're born into the home of a Christian family, or is it when they're old enough to profess faith on their own? Well, after careful study of the Bible, some are convinced that it's only right and proper to baptise someone with full immersion, so they go all the way under, upon profession of faith when they're old enough to do that. Yet others, after the same careful study of the Bible, conclude that it is fitting and right to sprinkle an infant with water to a child who belongs to a Christian family. Now this is an issue and our church is an example where this can become a disputable matter. It's not tied to salvation. Heaven and hell is not at stake. And so we are a church made up of people who hold to both views and who are comfortable to act in line with their convictions and accept others who hold the other position. Now, as a church, kind of formal position under Andrew the Elder, we believe that infant baptism is right and fitting and adorns the gospel, which is why we do baptise infants of Christian parents. And just as an aside, if you're interested as to why we believe that, we're actually running an info session in two Sundays' time, 3pm, so not next Sunday, but the 27th, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Anyone welcome to come and hear why we believe what we do on that issue. But we also offer dedication to the infants of parents who believe, no, 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 it's when they're older, when they can profess for themselves that they'll be baptised. We've even had pastoral staff over the years who hold to different positions. So this is an example where we can still hold to something, but it becomes a disputable issue, not a first-order gospel issue. Some issues are indisputable. Others, like baptism, are disputable. Paul is calling the Romans to accept each other over the issues of food, Drink, special days, disputable matters. Salvation is not at stake. They're not first order issues. Unless someone says, you cannot eat meat and be a Christian. Well, now we're talking about justification. How are we right before God? Now this is a first order issue, but that's not what's going on here. These are issues of Christian freedom. You are no better if you do them. you know better if you don't. Now some of the examples of disputable issues for us include some of the ones that Paul's actually dealing with here, alcohol. I was just speaking to someone this morning uh, speaking of someone in a church where this is a live issue. Christians don't drink, shouldn't drink. Piercings. Tattoos, clothing, makeup, are they appropriate for Christians? Politics, is there a Christian way to lean or not lean? Style of church service and music, the instruments that we have or don't have, the style of song and singing. Parenting approaches, is it the attachment approach? Is it just let them cry, they'll be all right approach? Schooling philosophy. Must be Christian schooling. No, no, no. Must be state school. Many a church has split over these issues unnecessarily, according to Paul. Because, have a look at chapter 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking or politics, or schooling, or parenting, or clothing, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is otherworldly. The things that we are latched onto and consumed by, it's not the nature of the kingdom. And so when it comes to disputable matters, matters that aren't at the heart of the kingdom, Paul says, accept one another. To the strong, whose boundaries extend as far as the gospel permits, he says, look at verse 3, do not treat with contempt the one who isn't at the place that you're at or the person who will never get to that point. Do not treat them with contempt, with arrogance. Stop looking down on them. And to the person whose boundaries are tighter than the gospel permits, he says, verse 4, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. This strong person in this case isn't saved before God because of their diet, because of their calendar, but because of the grace of Christ. Now, little warning here. In this passage, Paul is dealing with just. A select number of disputable matters. Food, alcohol, special days. Not many. And it seems that there was a group of people who kind of abstained from them, were for them. But there are many more than just three disputable matters. There are hundreds. And it is quite likely that all of us will find ourselves in both the weak and the strong category on different issues. Don't assume I'm the strong Christian who's got every disputable matter sorted. Be very careful, humility is needed here, that it's likely that where we think we are strong, we're actually weak. But what does Paul say, no matter what side we fall on, weak or strong? Well, he addresses our attitudes and our actions. When it comes to disputable matters, we all need to watch our attitude to those who differ with us. This is huge. Stop being so judgy. Stop being so arrogant. After all, this person that you arrogantly look down on, they're the Lord's. He makes them stand you think you are holier than God, the God that has said to this person, you are mine in Christ. We're to watch our attitudes to each other. But we may also need to change our actions. See, there are behaviours that in some circumstances are good, right, God-honouring. And then there are other circumstances where the exact same behaviour becomes sin. Some behaviours that in some situations, God honouring. The exact same thing in another situation is sin. For one of two reasons. Number one, conscience. Look at verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another... Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Verse 14 I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. Verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. There is a behaviour that can be within the bounds of honouring God if done with thanksgiving. For example, drinking alcohol. Without excess, without drunkenness, but alcohol, the passage is teaching, can be drunk in a way with with thanksgiving it's honoring to God but it becomes sin if your conscience says no no no, this is sinful towards God the Bible says it's okay it's you know better if you do or if you don't but if you're of the conviction that you should not and you do you are straight into sin this points us to a really important thing for us this morning God has given you a conscience for the good of your spiritual health. God has given you your conscience for the good of your spiritual health. Listen to it. Listen to your conscience. Because if you don't, And if you get in the habit of going against it, then you risk ignoring the voice that would have otherwise warned you from stepping into the most serious of sin. The most serious being stepping away from Jesus. It might be a small thing, but conscience says, don't do it. You push through that. You you deaden it. You harden it. You extend the boundaries so that when your voice would have said, don't do this, this is serious. You push right through, you're in the habit of doing it. Listen to your conscience, God has given it to you for the good of your spiritual health. But it doesn't always mean that your conscience is right. We are fallen. And therefore the importance of chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, that we continue to have our conscience reformed, transformed by the word of God, into one that increasingly matches God's good, pleasing and perfect will. So that our conscience will flash red at the right moments. And our conscience will soothe and calm and affirm at the right moments, according to God's mind, his will. So listen to your conscience. Don't go against it. But continue to have your conscience transformed, reformed, that the boundaries might fall into the right places that match the will of God. There's the first reason that one action in one circumstance can be okay, but in another sinful, sinning against conscience. Here's the second reason it's when one action causes another to stumble. To stumble into sin. Verse 13. Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. You catch that? It might be okay to conduct a certain behaviour before God with thanksgiving, but it becomes sin when it would cause a brother or sister to stumble, to fall into sin, into serious sin. So, if I drink wine with my wife over a meal, giving thanks to God, avoiding excess, drunkenness, I do that with thanksgiving to the honour of God. But if I know that you have a conviction that it's wrong for Christians to drink alcohol, I have you over to my place for a meal and I offer you a drink, you say, oh no, I think it's wrong, and I go ahead and have a glass in front of you. Well now, I sin as I put your spiritual health at risk, as I cause you to potentially push push through your conscience, which is saying don't, and sin against God. See, the mature conscience has two choices, to drink or to abstain. Free to do either. But the weaker conscience has only one choice, to abstain or to sin against conscience to sin against God. Christian freedom, when maturely understood, is free to do all sorts of things. But get this, it's also free not to. Immaturity insists on freedom in a way that takes it from being the good thing that it is to something that is spoken of as being evil. Verse 16. Now, an important qualification here, which is for you, just in case you were thinking, great, he's preaching himself into a corner. Because you know what? I don't like the music style here. It offends me. You know what? I don't like his earrings. They offend me. And so he's preaching himself into a corner. I'm going to tell him they offend me. He must take them out. Not that any of you would be thinking that, right? You you are beautiful. (laughs) But you get the issue here, right? Does this mean I have to change my tastes and preference to to match who? Because we've got a whole range of tastes and preferences. No, 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 hear this. There is a key difference between tempting someone into sin who is weak and going against the tastes of someone who is strong. I'll say that again. There is a massive difference between tempting someone into sin who is weak and going against the tastes of someone who is actually rock solid. If you don't like my body piercings, it's almost entirely certain that you are in no danger of straight after church getting in your car going down to Black Wolf Tattoo Parlour and getting a belly ring, right? <laughs> it's not going to happen. I, I, I am in no danger of tempting... You are so strong in the Lord, you have strong convictions, but you also have strong tastes and preferences. And by me having piercings, I am not tempting you, strong person, into sinning against conscience... And against God. This is not an instruction to change all of your preferences and tastes because they don't line up with those of others. And how would we ever find the common denominator about what the acceptable taste and preference is? Which is why verse 22 is important, chapter 14. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Don't be that person who drums up a campaign in church for... Christian schooling is the only way that you Christian... No, no, no. State schooling is the only way. Don't be that person in church who drums up... You can only vote this way. You can only have your convictions, have your tastes and preferences, whatever you believe about these things, disputable matters, keep them between yourself and God. Now, this is not talking about preaching, teaching, which is why we're offering the class on baptism in a couple of weeks' time. But this is speaking to us as Christians in a diverse community, work out what the disputable matters are, to yourself. Accept one another. Seek to be the mature Christian who verse 15 acts in love. Seek to be the person who chapter 15 verse 1 we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. This brings us to the third and final part this morning, the engine. The engine that powers all of this instruction. See, can you imagine walking into a high school yard? For some of you, that's tomorrow, I know, right? Actually, no, it's not. It's a public holiday, isn't it? Good for you. Tuesday. But we remember the high school yard. <coughs> oh, wow, what a place. Teenagers who splinter into all kinds of groups and subgroups along the most nasty of lines. Imagine walking into the high school yard and saying to the 1,000 teenagers, Oi! Accept one another. Accept one another. Bear with one another. Overlook each other's diff. How do you think that's going to go? How do you think it's going to go in the workplace, on the job site, in the P&C committee, where even there's like a common interest that brings people together, but we split over all sorts of things. Walk into any place and say, can you just accept each other? How's it going to go? It's not. It's not going to work. But it ought to work in church. Why? Because this instruction is powered by and patterned after God's gospel. Verse 5, have a look at chapter 15, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement. It's God who gives endurance and encouragement. Look at where it's rooted, look at the source. It's God who gives it. Let this God give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. There you have it. The engine that powers this instruction to accept. Christ, the eternal Son of God, set aside all of his divine prerogatives. He set them aside as the truly strong one, who emptied himself, who took on the form of a servant and being found in human appearance, became obedient even to death on a cross. Obedient to God according to his conscience that was always in line with the will of God. Jesus, Jesus lived the life of perfect conscience before God. Can you say that you've done that? Of course we can't. He can. He did. So that he might do it on behalf of those who fall. And that he might go to the cross and die a wrath-absorbing death in our place. So that we might be accepted as righteous. Joined to God by faith in Christ. That we might know peace with God. Do you know this peace? Do you know this unity with God? Because... It's only knowing this that you would have any hope at fulfilling this instruction to accept one another. And so let me say to you, if you are not a follower of Jesus, and I know there's a number of you here and we love that. But if that's you, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, please forget trying to get on with any of us. Just be as obnoxious and rude and arrogant and judgmental as you are, right? Because any attempts of you just to try and be kind, to try and get on with us, will be of no value to you when you stand before the judgment throne of God. Forget behavioral modification. That's not what Christianity is about. Do listen to what we are saying about what Jesus has done for you. That you have a savior there. If you would look to him, trust in him, be united to God through him, and having done that, well, now let that transform the way that you relate to others, to this family. You know, that expression, "You can't choose your family." Look around, <laughs> All right? Well, some of you try to actually. oh this church that I don't like this, and I like I'm getting go out that one and, you know, you do six months there, oh, this one, the that's not the answer. The answer is the gospel. And to just push into how much God has done for us. Let your challenges, your struggles with the people around you, throw your eyes onto God. God, like, oh, they're so hard and they're so good. And God goes, uh-huh, how do you think you are before me? And yet I love you. I am for you in my son. Don't throw out your head. Just be all heart, loving and accepting. No, no, no. Have your head transformed so that your conscience might be realigned with God's. But we are to continually grow soft-hearted towards one another. To bear with the immaturity of others In the messiness of our lives, get amongst it. If you aren't experiencing frustration with brothers and sisters, you're not amongst it. And you are missing out on what God has for you and for Himself. Because, did you catch that? Verse 7? This is to bring praise to God. We bring praise to God as we sing. We're going to come to that in a moment. We bring praise to God as we accept one another, bear with one another. And in doing this, we will, as a community, enjoy righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Oh, what a gift God has given us here at EV. The unity that we do enjoy. And if you push into it, it's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Let's continue to pray for that mini- Miracle as we listen and heed this instruction to accept, to love, to bear. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we thank you again afresh for Jesus, for your stance towards us in him. We do not deserve it. For any among us who don't know peace, unity righteousness joy in him please bring them to trust in him to throw their lives upon him and for those of us who have forgive us for when we have sinned against conscience for those of us who are developing a pattern of that stop them this morning call them back to repentance lord for all of us give us the humility to see where our consciences are Uh, need to move, need to stretch, need to shrink. In all of this, please do a powerful work by your Spirit that we might continue to enjoy righteousness, peace and joy together in the name of Jesus as we await and long for his return when all things will be perfectly united. We pray this in his name. Amen.